Nicholas Bornos of Capitaling, and I am delighted to welcome you to the first panel of the day. Uh, this panel is coming after the opening keynote remarks by the U.S. administration by Ms. Diane Farrell, uh, who gave us the U.S. government perspective on the U.S. priorities and policies in international trade. So this panel is going to discuss about a new era for global commerce and, uh, and trade. And we have with us an amazing panel. Again, we cannot be together to, get to, uh, to, to shake hands with each other, but uh, the digital aspect gives us the opportunity to connect from all over the world. We have online Norway, Switzerland, Hong Kong, Cyprus, and of course, New York. So it's a truly, truly global panel to talk about global trade and, uh, and commerce. And without any more delay, I will turn it over to John Keo, uh, our trusted partner who is uh, doing this uh, panel uh, very well prepared every time. And I thank him for, for being with us. And of course, I thank each and every one of you for joining us today. John, the panel is yours. Thank you, Nicholas. Thank you. You set, you set the bar high. That's, we like that. We like that. And uh, good, good morning, everyone, or good afternoon or evening, wherever you are in the audience. Uh, thank you for tuning into our session here. I'm John Keel. I am a partner in, in the law firm Clyde & Co. Uh, I am in their New York office, and I am co-head of the firm's North American practice on marine energy and trade. Um, and as Nicholas said, we've heard the remarks of Undersecretary Farrell on the administration's priorities for supply chain resilience and their trade policies. Now we'll hear from, uh, I'm honored to introduce our global panel of the stakeholders in that supply chain. And we'll hear their views on how they achieve their best results going forward and advancing their agendas in this new era. Uh, against this background, the words of Winston Churchill ring loud and clear here. However beautiful the strategy, you should occasionally look at the results. Well, our panel is key to look at the results. We've got a range of perspectives here, vessel operators, ocean carriers, technology and design, cargo interests, uh, and uh, as well as uh, BIMCO and other NGO leaders in the industry. Um, on the panel, first we have uh, Martin Fergard, uh, who is the CEO of Pacific Basin. Uh, he's in Hong Kong. We have Lasse Christofferson, uh, who joins us as the CEO of Torvald Clavinus uh, in Oslo. Aaron Bresnahan is with us, who is president and managing director of Wartzilla North America, based in Florida, although he, I think, is present in New York. Uh, Bud Dar, uh, who is the executive vice president of the MSC Group's Maritime Policy and Government Affairs section. And I think we may have joining us at some point, who's not here now, is Mark O'Neill, who is president of Columbia Ship Manager. I'm sorry, excuse me. Andre Andreas is there. Andreas, Andreas, excuse me, Andreas uh, Ajipet Petru who is the Managing Director of Columbia Ship Management Limited in Cyprus and Chief Commercial Officer of their group, and who also is a Director of BIMCO. Now we have a host of issues we're going to get into from COVID recovery to crew disruption, 
important supply chain disruptions, the choking concerns of tariff regulations and sanctions compliance risks and the patchwork of uh, difficulties that presents. So without further ado, Martin, why don't we kick it off with you, if you don't mind. Tell us, what do you see as the, the major keys for you to maximize shareholder value in this new era of trade and commerce? What are you trying best to align with and achieve uh, in these coming years? Well, uh, yeah, that's a broad, broad question. Uh, but I think if we start, uh, I'm so lucky that I'm in the dry cargo segment where the market is, is very good at the moment. So you can say that's, of course, one of the things we're looking at, how do we maximize our earnings in, in, in this good market? And uh, of course, also you know, looking at the market to see how, how long will it last. Uh, there's, of course, two things that we keep an eye on. That's, first of all, the supply side, you know, new ships being built. And there, you know, I guess we can't help talking about decarbonization and the new rules coming in, which actually sort of, at least for the dry carcass sector, has ensured that not too many ships are being ordered at the moment. I think it is. But of course, we also look very much at the demand side. And there's shipping always something to be concerned about. But, um, but of course, we also look at, at uh, for instance, China, and, but, but also Europe and the US and, and other places. And also here, I think decarbonization is part of the, the equation. Where you see trade pattern also changing because you know, lack of energy or, or maybe reduction of uh, highly polluting industries. And I think that also looking forward will, will change our trade patterns. And so, of course, in any shipping company, supply demand is, is, is extremely important and that we keep an, keep an eye on. Um, on sort of more operational part, you can say we, we are struggling with the crew changes. Uh, uh, we have in the city basin, we have it in-house, uh, that, that part of it. Uh, we have our own crew, more than 4,500 people working for us, been working for us for a long time. And, you know, when I have the opportunity, I like to sort of talk their case a little bit because we usually send many of them out for five months. And uh, after 10 months, we, we still can't take them off because uh, all the rules around the world in respect to COVID and, and all the restrictions being made. Um, and of course, I think that's a little bit of a challenge. And going forward, so that's an immediate challenge. I'm sure we solve it, I'm sure we'll be better. Our challenge is a little bit when we look ahead and we look at also again decarbonization, the, the new ships that we're going to buy in the future will be more sophisticated, it will be dual fuel, it will be a different fuel type, it will be different uh, things that our crew has to do. And we are sometimes a little worried that getting talented young people to go and see again might not be that easy after. Uh, after COVID and after the way we in the world actually sort of treated our crew. I'm not so sure that anyone will go home and, and, and brand a life at sea to, to their children and to their friends. And so I think we have a little bit of a challenge. Do you see that as a fundamental challenge, as a basic challenge in the, in the immediate future is feeding that pipeline? I think it's, a, I think it's something the world has taken a little bit for granted that, you know, crew on ships, they're there. It's a bit, I guess it's a bit like truck drivers in the UK. Everybody takes it for granted, they're there. Uh, and, and actually many of the people, most of the people we have on our ships have actually uh, very skillful people, very trained people have been on board on ships for many, many years. Uh, very, very trained in what they do. They're not that easy just to replace. Um, and we need to ensure there's a, there's a, there's a decent pipeline 
of good, young, talented people who wants to go aboard the ships and run the music ships as well. So that's clearly also something that you said and can be a little bit worried about. Thanks, you. Thanks, Martin. Bud, what are your thoughts on, on the challenges that are most pressing for you in this new era? I mean, decarbonization, I'm sure, is one of them. What what are you? What are your views on that and and these other challenges that Martin has touched on? Yeah, so um, thank you, John. And the wolf closest to the door for us at the moment is, of course, getting through the immediate um, supply chain disruptions and serving the needs of the customers in the in the liner business. I mean, it's been an extraordinary amount of volatility that we've seen in the volume demand uh, on our sector and being able to meet that. And we're far from being through it, despite some rather optimistic announcements in the media today from, from the U.S. government leadership, um, there's a lot of hard work yet to be done. Uh, at the end of the day, what our business does, and I, I think pretty much everyone in, in the business of shipping, is facilitate trade, and, and we have to follow where the trade is. We currently, in our sector, which principally focuses on our fleet of more than 600 cellular container ships, is experiencing a uh, mismatch between supply and demand, the likes of which, you know, I, I don't know if we've ever quite seen this before. So the challenge is, how do we grow the capacity to meet that, but don't overshoot the mark too much, because things will normalize, and, and we'll get through this once the effects of the pandemic um, start to find an equilibrium, uh, and then create an overcapacity situation, which isn't terribly good either. Uh, so one of the other challenges in doing that is that as we look for what is going to be required for the long-term future of our fleet and our goals towards decarbonization, which for our company and you know, many others is net zero for 2050, uh, how do you make those capacity adjustments and still order ships today that may be fit for purpose 10, 20, 25 years downrange, um, it, it's not an easy thing to do in light of the challenges that are out there with a limited amount of solutions to actually address them yet. But we're working very hard at that. Uh, partnerships, I think, are a key to that. Optimism is a key to that. And I believe we'll get there. But that is one of the greatest challenges is how do you adapt the capacity as needed so that supply and demand get more in equilibrium without populating your fleet with too many new ships that may or may not be suitable for transition to future fuels. And uh, future fuels are going to have a variety of solutions for different ship types. One last comment I'll make, because uh, I don't want to uh, take up too much of the time here, is just to follow up on what Martin said regarding seafarers. I, I just think I would be completely remiss if I didn't take a moment to, to thank from the bottom of my heart, um, this 1.4 million or so seafarers on any given day that are out there. They have kept the world's economy functioning. They have kept trade being allowed to flow. They have been absolute heroes in this pandemic. And I have to be honest with you, I think the way they've been treated by some governments is shameful. And I hope it's something that never repeats itself again. I hope we're able to collectively take action to protect them better in the future. And if we're not very, very careful, we are going to create disincentives to bring new talent, which we need so badly and with new skills into operating the ships of tomorrow that are so badly going to be needed to keep trade flowing. Uh, but they are essential. Uh, I think they deserve to be honored. And I think they deserve to be treated much better than they were by governments in this crisis. Thank you. Well, well stated, Bud. Well stated, and and I, so you see the 
immediate challenges of seafarers and dealing with the immediate congestion problems uh, in being dealt with in tandem and not slowing down your decarbonization efforts. That fair comment? You think? I'd honestly say the you know, the converse is true. We've accelerated our decarbonization efforts. Uh, the internal and external drivers for doing that are more present than they've ever been. We have not gotten distracted by all of this other necessity of keeping the business functioning and the supply chain moving. Uh, we have in, instead redoubled our efforts and accelerated our plans towards decarbonization. And I think you'll find that through, through many actors in the industry as well, including some on this call. Aaron Bresnahan uh, of Wardzilla. Aaron, uh, you're at the forefront of the technology advances that the industry is experiencing and, and that you are uh, uh, harnessing really. And, and what are your thoughts on these uh, immediate dealing with these logistics challenges and what solutions do you foresee? Well, thank you very much for having me here. Uh, I guess one thing just for a little bit of clarification on Wardzilla is one of the things that we're uh, really focused on is enabling sustainable societies through the use of technology and services. And so I think that really encapsulate a, a lot of what we're saying here today is that we're really looking for ways to help ship owners, charters, and the entire marine ecosystem find those solutions and work with them to get those uh, implemented and, and accelerated. Um, if we're talking specifically about the congestion and the supply chain issues, um, one thing that I would like to talk about, Bartola is normally known as the engine, the engine company, um, but we also have other marine solutions related to uh, scrubbers, but also one I would like to point to is our voyage uh, organization. So one thing that we've been recently talking about and actually experimenting with is a uh, process that we're talking about as digital ports. So what that's really uh, engaging is being able to use almost like a port management information system to be able to coordinate between smart ships and smart ports and to be able to have full transparency between all the stakeholders, whether it's the ship owner, whether it's the, the port authority, whether it's the, um, the truckers or the, the agents and be able to help them be, be able to coordinate and to be able to have just in time way of working so that you can minimize the amount of anchorage time. You can slow the ships up or slow the ships down and we have a, a real live example today uh, where we're working with Tanger Med in Africa uh, using this software and really uh, making steps forward in uh, reducing congestion there. So I think this is a great step forward, but as we look into the future, if we're going to address some of the, the short-term disconnects between supply and demand, long-term, we also have to think about the flow and how you deal with cargo and deliveries all over the world. So I think that's critically important. Um, but at the same time, um, we also have to think about, you know, the way that the ships are operated, um, the way that, you know, we're dealing with, um, again, these supply and demand issues and the way that technology develops over time. What, what challenges are you seeing, Aaron? You're, you're certainly on both sides of the, the supply uh, chain. You're, you're moving uh, material as well as um, aiding the industry in, in advancing their technology. What, what are you seeing as the problems right now with the congestion in the supply chain? Well, um, also, we're seeing a little bit of an issue. You mentioned the you know, tariffs earlier. Um, 
you know, we're a, we're a global manufacturing organization. So we, we have manufacturing facilities in, in China, we have them in Europe, we have them spread throughout the world. So we're also finding that because of some of the tariffs that are, that are in place and, and are actually affecting supply chain and demand based on the cost of producing and the cost of, you know, we might've made a decision earlier that we wanted a manufacturing facility for, for reasons, but as we want to be able to supply markets in multiple places, that causes disruptions as well. Um, so as we look forward into the future and we look at, at the global manufacturing footprint and the way that materials move and the way that ships are built or the way that technologies are implemented, we also have to be very cognizant about you know, putting, let's say, unnatural uh, you know, inserts of these kind of, um, uh, you know, let's say, negative incentives to, to manufacture in one location or another because ultimately that will have um, a degree of influence, not just from a manufacturing perspective, but also you know, the, where the demand is coming from and, and the supply. Thanks, Aaron. Lasse, good afternoon. With, you've, you've heard some of these comments now. I'm sure you have some, some well-developed views on, on these <laughs> points from your perspective, both as uh, operating and managing pools and so on. Could you what are, you, what are your thoughts about the, the most challenging forces that you're reckoning with now? No, I mean, just to make sure I mentioned it as well, I couldn't be, agree more with Bud and the others on, on the crewing issue, and, and it's really been shameful. Uh, I think most shipping players have acted quite responsibly, so I do think that we come out of this crisis well, uh, but the nations, uh, a lot of the nations around the world have nothing to really... Um, you know, be proud of. Uh, I think, I mean, in general, I would say that our perspective is that we, we tend to be linear in all our thinking. So when there's a crisis, uh, we think that the world is falling apart. And when there's a boom, it will stay like this forever, which is not the case, of course. So, so I think uh, we as Klavnes are trying as much as we can to prepare for, for the other side of this uh, cycle in, in container and, and in dry bulk and others. And, and I think it's, Worthwhile to notice that, that at least in, in our view, these are these are time effects. I mean, basically, a lot of factors hit at the same time: recovery from COVID, uh, consumption moving from from leisure to, to goods, and as a follow-up on that increase, you had uh, you had um, congestion growing in in, in container and, and bulk and. The bad thing is that when tin turns, they can turn really fast. So, so I think, first of all, uh, enjoy the ride while we have it. Uh, so, but, but back to your more fundamental question of how to create value in supply chains going forward in, in Klavnes, we, to us, there are two main value drivers where we can create new value going forward. And that is through uh, digitalization and it is through decarbonization. Uh, and I think it's, it's for us, like in, in the company, listed company, we have Klavnes combination carriers. We have focused a lot on how can we create systemic carbon efficiency in the market. Uh, and we are combining wet and dry cargos. And through that, we have a lower uh, carbon emissions of maybe 30, 40% in the same trades. And we can do that today and even offer a competitive trade. Uh, and that, of course, is not enough because our customers are asking us in the short term to be more efficient, but in the medium term to go to zero. And that's really where we focus. How can we create logistic systems in that? And that's where the digital comes in, because we're also working through Cloudless Digital with, with cargo value, where we help 
industrial companies to use the data and the technology available to manage their supply chains better. Because I think one of the, one of the main mistakes our customers, the industry have done over the years is to believe that shipping does not have surprises. And they plan as if everything will go as scheduled every time, and it never does. So to able, so that's why we, when we try to sum this up, we say that we need to make resilient, decarbonized and cost effective supply chains. And we need to optimize all these three aspects at the same time. And, and uh, uh, the industrial companies we work with in the steel industry, cement industry, aluminum, you know, the leading industries in the world, they are now really trying to utilize digital technology also to take the first step on decarbonization. Uh, and, uh, and I would think it's fair to say that in the bulk sector, wet or dry, where we work, um, the world is based on spreadsheets, not cloud solutions to a lot of extent, uh, which is very different from many other industries. And that's where we try to make a difference. Thanks, Lasse. Andreas, good afternoon to you. And, and you've listened to the panelists so far. Tell me, from the vessel management and crew managing operations perspective, what are you seeing right now? What are the challenges that you're trying to uh, overcome in this next era of trade and commerce? Thank you, John, and uh, hello to everybody. And uh, I mean, to some extent, what I would like to say is what has been covered already by, uh, by everybody, really. And um, if I take, for example, the, the comments of Bad on how how difficult it has been on the crew change and the crisis that we have faced on crew changes and so on. It's, um, you know, it's unbelievable when you come in the office uh, every morning and then if you manage a fleet of more, more than 100 or 200 ships, on a daily basis, there is something happening. There is somebody that uh, has caught COVID and so on. And then the immediate reaction is, okay, what does this mean for trade? What does this mean for the ship? How do we handle it? How do we inform the charterers? How do we ensure that there is minimum trade destruction uh, for the ship owner, um, loss of hire and stuff like that? So, so the, the shift has moved really not from the technical aspect, but rather to the crewing aspect of managing the ships. You need to make sure that the health and hygiene of the people is being um, uh, looked at, you have to follow the protocols and so on. So the one major challenge that everybody agrees to is actually the crewing side. Um, and, and on the crewing side, um, everybody's taking additional measures more than we ever did before uh, for the seafarers. So uh, it's now very common that everybody provides um, free internet, mental health uh, uh, support, um, uh, more interactive approach towards training, building up the seafarers and so on. Therefore, uh, on the on the crewing side, we are all um, much more um, proactive and much more careful than in the past. Um, then, of course, it's a digitalization. We as an organization, we have looked into the digital technology a few years back, and we have been the first ones that we built it up our own performance optimization control room, whereby the performance of the ships and the voyage uh, routing and so on has been 
optimized in, in a certain way using cloud technology, just to refer to what Aaron mentioned earlier as well. So obviously the digitalization is one of the eras that we will all be looking at moving forward into the future. This is, is this a solution? No, it's not the solution. Is this helping towards to find the solution? Yes, there are already platforms providing advice for just on time arrival at ports and so on. So we're working on different solutions uh, for the clients. Um, the other thing which I see coming as well is um, the overall approach towards sustainability. At least from our point of view as a technical ship manager and as, as a service provider towards the ship owners, um, the sustainability elements have never really been on the top of the agenda in, in ways of structuring everything in the right way. Whereas nowadays we see the trend also due to Poseidon rules and so on, whereby you need to structure your, um, your governance in, a, in such a way which is more visible, which is more uh, transparent, and then people actually are able to see the things that are normally done within the organization. Therefore, um, I would reckon that a third pillar relates completely on the, on the sustainability approach of each organization. So we will all help to some extent, the societies that we operate, we will all um, toward, work towards greener shipping and, and, and therefore sustainability is gonna be one of the main things moving forward as well. Thanks, Andreas, thank you. Let me throw this out to the panel generally. You know, the, everyone has mentioned the, the plight of seafarers and, and the media has, has been uh, making clear the, uh, the difficult times seafarers are facing. The Wall Street Journal, for example, had a banner headline the other day uh, indicting the industry really for abandoning seafarers on deserted ships uh, for uh, months and months at a time without pay. You all operate sophisticated businesses with, with you know, conscious efforts to uh, improve the plight of seafarers and to manage these. Do you see the industry stepping into this lacuna where there are the smaller operators uh, and, and these congestion problems as well in, in the ports? Um, or do you see the government regulators stepping in uh, to try to deal with those problems? Uh, John, I... I'd be happy to, to step into that question a little bit. Um, a couple of stage stages prior in my career to the one I'm in right now, uh, I was a U.S. government representative, and I had the honor to chair the working group that developed the first set of amendments to the Maritime Labor Convention, which were actually intended to provide financial security in the case of, of abandonment, also personal injury and death, but those were different dynamics. One of the challenges with abandonment and finding an ability to provide financial security, particularly if that's going to be insurance, is it is essentially a security against insolvency. And so it's something that other ship owners have difficulty seeing as a mutual risk. Ultimately, they did, and, and the P&I clubs uh, of the IG group, you know, all stood together and found a solution for it for the ships that are enrolled in those clubs. However, um, it does 
remain, particularly in uncertain economic times and in, in certain sectors, a particular problem for those ships that operate outside of that normal framework or maybe somehow manage to operate outside the framework of the Maritime Labor Convention itself. So some steps were taken to try and provide that assurance. I think that education around that is somewhat lacking, just the fact that we're having this conversation now. And I didn't really see that appear in the Wall Street Journal article, that there were steps that were taken you know, almost 10 years ago um, to try and, and, and institutionalize this in a, a meaningful way. Uh, but it's apparent there still needs to be more done, particularly with some of those smaller operators that are more uh, more vulnerable to insolvency. And, uh, you know, uh, when you read these individual stories about how an abandonment plays out, it, it, it just makes responsible ship owners like anyone you would have on this call, it, it just makes our heart absolutely sink uh, because no one deserves to be treated like that. And, and seafarers are particularly vulnerable when they're taken away to a foreign land by their employer and then somehow left there because the employer has just disappeared. So I do think that there needs to be greater awareness when it happens. I think there needs to be swift action taken under the convention when it applies, including by the seafarers themselves, because uh, direct access to the benefits is part of the, of the scheme that was, was provided there. And then where that doesn't apply, I think perhaps there's more attention needed for an additional safety net, not just left uh, to the charity of, of, of others to resolve. Uh, I, um, I, I do think that as we look forward here, those sorts of situations are, are things that we have to find a way to eliminate because we do have to make this an attractive occupation for young people to be able to fulfill the needs of society in the future. And I think it's a real challenge for us, uh, particularly with the demands of the job in the best of times, um, that when we're struggling with adverse situations that are maybe transitory in nature, um, we have to try even harder to make sure that we don't harm the reputation of the profession to the point where we can't attract that talent that we're gonna need so badly. So I support all those efforts, thank you. Thanks. Thanks, bud. Thanks, bud. Anyone else want to weigh in on that uh, at the moment? Well, I think one of the really important aspects as well is just that we as a global maritime ecosystem agree together, whether it's through the IMO or whatever, in whatever collective uh, organizations that we have, that because global trade is so essential to the entire world's economy, that every aspect of the workers related to it should be treated as essential workers. I mean, most of the countries that were shut down, they allowed internal travel for essential workers or they allowed people to show up to work. So there should still be the ability to go from one country to another to return home if you're a mariner. And every there should be a convention that says that that's, that's a fundamental right because of the, the essential uh, nature of what they're doing. And, and that's, should not just be returning home, but I'm also kind of talking in the context of service engineers and being able to work on vessels while they're underway uh, because there were many restrictions from us as a supplier to even be able to send people from one country to another to work on ships and to make sure that they were in service and able to transit goods. So it's, uh, it's critical going forward. Aaron, with the- uh, If you allow me to jump in. Uh, go, go ahead, Austin. I mean, we-, we we have a tendency to kind of allow um, our stakeholders to talk our industry down. And we shouldn't do that uh, in a way, because I think, I mean, of course, we're not stronger than our weakest link, but these abandoned ships, they are, um, you know, a, a very rare uh, incident. And I would say that 
all the owners I know of and, and, and on this call and, and way, way, way beyond that has really, you know, made an extra effort uh, on, on, on managing their crews and done whatever they can to keep them safe and even their families safe. Uh, and I think, I mean, the, and there's another way to look at the COVID crisis. I think maybe out of this, uh, the, you know, general public will realize that we have built a world uh, around global logistics and that global logistics have enabled the, the society model we have today, lifted people out of poverty in, in developing countries, building the, the, the ecosystems of the apples and the Amazons of the world. I mean, that's enabled by shipping and it's enabled by the crew. And I think, you know, ever given and all of this, that will help telling the story that we are actually, you know, the bloodstream of, of, of the world. And if you look at how shipping have done in coping with the growth in world trade over the last generation, it's unbelievable. I mean, it's grown more than any other thing. It's grown twice the BNP of the world and more than that. And we've been able to deliver and deliver and deliver. So I think out of this, you can also draw a more positive story that shipping is actually able to cope and enable the world to build as one large production system. However, we need to become more clever in how we utilize technology every day to make sure that we deliver a good supply chain to our customers. But I think that's actually what's going on. You want to say a word on business models that you're considering or that are no, under I, comparison? I think it depends on which side of this you are, right? I mean, the, the traditional business model of owning a vessel from initiation till, till, uh, to, to, to scrapping, if you look on the return on that over the last 20, 30 years, it's zero. So simply just owning a vessel and hoping for the best is, is not really providing you a return. And why is that? That's because exactly the reason I said, the reason why shipping has been able to cope with global growth is that there are hardly any, any uh, barriers to entry. I mean, you can, you can order a vessel in, in China today and you can put it into Columbia Ship Management and they will pick it up tomorrow. You can put it into our pool, we will start this afternoon and so on and so forth. So I think uh, the good news is that, that uh, we have enormous access to vessels uh, but to own vessels becomes more and more challenging in terms of returns. And you have to be quite good at understanding when to enter and, and, and leave the market, of course. But there are some pockets of opportunities where you truly create value with your vessels. And, and that's at least where we as Clavinus try to, to be. But, but I do think that we, at least as a company, are positioning ourselves towards business models where we create true value. And we can create true value in two ways. One is to create a transport system which has higher carbon efficiency. I mentioned the, the occupation carriers and so on. Or we can create better systems through pools, through supply chain software, or everything. Anything. So, so I would say when we as Clavinus work on business development, we don't focus that much on the ship as a system, but how we can create new business models on putting the ship into better systems. So more the ships, uh, put the ship into a system than ship as a system itself. Uh, and that's where you see most of the technology development going on at the moment. Martin, did you want to comment on that, on the business model approach or any of these comments? No, I agree with Nessa to, to a certain extent. Uh, 
in our Pacific Basin, we own 120 ships and we control totally 260 or 270 ships. It's a, uh, uh, so, so we are exactly what Lasse is mentioning. We are a ship owner <laughs> in many of it. And maybe that's also why we talk a little bit about the crew and, and these things. I do think it's a competitive edge for us going forward that we have everything in-house. We do our own technical management. We're quite proud of that. We're proud of, proud of our crew. We think that actually over time also provide customers a different service than many others is doing who's probably outsourcing the parts of it. Like only the future can say who's right or wrong in that, but as Lester says, our business is still depending on when you buy the assets and when you sell them. And I also agree with Lester that you know, we have to look at how can we add more value to the to the uh, to the chain to the supply chain than uh, than, uh, than just the timing of when we acquire the assets and so but I, I think Pacific Basin we focus very much on minor bulk. Uh, uh, we have 80% of, but more than 80% that we actually making, so we only 20% in ballast. You know, you look at decarbonization, you know, we already do a lot in, in that, but, but I think maybe sometimes the dialogue is a little bit hijacked by, by zero emission that we all know we have to do by 2050. I think when I look at my daily job here, you know, I have a little bit of a challenge with 120 owned ships who will run on fuel oil, uh, and, and we have a world who needs those ships, huh? whether we like it or not. Um, and of course, we have to do a lot in, in 2023 and 2030 to sort of reduce our, our carbon footprint. We can't do it alone. We need, uh, especially our customers, to enter a dialogue with us to try try that. I actually see the entire decarbonization actually as a, as, a, as a good opportunity for the ship owners actually also to uh, differentiate, uh, find different business models, which I also think we need a little bit in our industry to, uh, to create more value to our customers. Thank you, Martin. Aaron, um, you've been active with implementing the Poseidon principles, guiding, invest, guiding investments and, and attempting to achieve ship efficiency. How do you see the implementation of Poseidon pr principles fitting in in this new era, uh, and in particular with chartering of vessels? Uh, thank you for that question, and uh, I, I would say, especially on the, the last two comments, uh, specifically talking about sustainability and efficiency improvements and, you know, where to place your bets, I think the Poseidon Principles is a very uh, good example of how banking, you know, the banking industry, which is part of the reason why this whole panel's together, is really looking about how they employ capital and the way that they expect uh, their investments to help improve uh, and increase sustainability. So I think one of the things that we try to do as a technology provider is to be able to work with the banks to help them understand what kind of technical parameters and KPIs can be put in place when they're working with uh, charters or with, uh, I'm sorry, the, the, ship, um, the ship owners so that when they are working with charters, they can ensure that the, the technology and the, the, the runway, the longest uh, available use of that ship, meeting the criteria uh, on, on, the, on the specific requirements of the loan are, are able to be met. So quite often what we're trying to do is to, to educate people about that, to let them know about what different types of solutions can bring different types of returns. Because in many cases, it, it could be, um, as was said, there's all kinds of technologies that you can try to use to improve maybe engine efficiency, or you could improve efficiency of the holes, or you can improve efficiency of the overall uh, energy management system on board, 
where you can add, uh, you know, you know, wind technology or re uh, renewable technologies. So being able to evaluate all those and the benefits that each of the, those bring uh, is critically important. But one of the things that we are seeing is that there's a lot of the CEOs and the C-level uh, members of different groups saying that they're really getting behind this emissions uh, reduction or this sustainability initiative. But we're still seeing in the short term that, that, that at the chartering level, they're still kind of using the, the old criteria of whatever's cheapest gets the award. So I would just hope that there's a connection between the, the rhetoric at the top, which we really truly support in the actions that are taking place at the working level. And I'm sure that'll be overcome in time, um, but that's probably one of the short-term uh, struggles um, that a lot of people are having as we move towards this sustainable future. Thanks, okay. thanks, Aaron. Andreas, did you, did you want to weigh in there? Well, I think both uh, Martin and Aaron, they have a very good point, really. Um, what I wanted to say about Martin's comment is that it is truly a time of, of opportunity as well. It's, it's a good chance for different stakeholders to come closer together and discuss how they can help each other. So uh, from our side, what we do, we go towards the clients and we, we, we are facilitating them, helping them through the decarbonization process and we provide advice, solutions and so on. So, so it's a natural thing to do to go towards your uh, client. But at the same time, we, we go towards a supply chain and, and we work together with our service providers to create the new solutions uh, for the owners uh, moving forward. So, so generally, this is also a time of, uh, of opportunity for all of us to, to make sure that uh, we work together and we, we create the greener shipping, which is a common target at the end. Um, having said that, the closing comment of Aaron was actually very interesting because Aaron referred to the different tiers of expectations and he referred to the charterers, um, which, is a, which is a commercial re reality. We all know that the 2,800 TU ship, for example, will be, will be charged so much and, uh, and, uh, and the elements are really the commercial, uh, um, uh, the main driver of, of the charterers uh, when it comes to fixing ships. Um, let me also reflect that on the technical ship management approach, whereby from our side, we are obviously dealing with um, clients who are very much forward thinking, who are very much thinking towards um, digitalization, smart ships, investing in different technologies. But at the same time, we are to some extent being requested to work with clients that they're actually not willing to invest in, in anything. And, uh, and their main driver is really how to cover the OPEX. And you have to respect both scenarios. You have to respect the ship owner that is making a lot of money and is willing to move forward, invest, and think for new solutions. But you are also uh, obliged to work together with, uh, with a client who is more um, under a financial consideration to, to invest. Therefore, um, I think moving forward, the market will adjust itself. And uh, as always, we will have different tiers of, of management and, uh, and different tiers of owners and different tiers of operating ships. Thanks, Andreas. Lasse, your thoughts? I think you're on mute. Yeah, I was working on that. So I hope I'm on now. Uh, yeah. No, I, I couldn't let the decarbonization tag 
pass without jumping in. And I'm sure uh, I have others like, but uh, yeah, then I can see <laughs> Bud fired right away. That's good, Bud. Uh, so, I mean, we, we can approach, again, we can approach decarbonization in two ways. One is saying that everybody else has to do a lot. Nothing is happening fast enough, blah, blah, blah. I mean, that's the negative side. The reality is that the world is changing much faster than we actually imagined just a few years ago. Uh, in my view, this started really, the world started to change with Greta Thunberg and all our kids coming back home and saying, Daddy, what age are you doing? I mean, what are you guys doing? Are you dirty or are you clean? And this has, I mean, so if you see what has happened over the last couple of years in our industry, even in the bodies I'm part of, I'm embodied myself, we are, uh, we are working in the ICS, where we're trying to gather the whole world of ship owners. And I think it's fair to say that three years ago, we didn't even agree that climate change existed. And now we are proposing market-based measures and net zero in 2050, in just a few years. We see customers, industrial companies, moving from not even spelling scope three emissions, which is basically supply chain, two years ago, now to be willing to pay to reduce it. We have specific customers who are now having a budget internally of $100, to, I mean, that a charterer can spend $100 to reduce the emission with one ton of CO2. So I think we have to, you know, kind of put the finger down and, and say things are changing fast. So the question is rather, are we as an industry changing fast enough? Because we will not decide on this space. The society around us will. We cannot decide whether we want to be at zero in 2050. The, decide, the society will decide for us. The good news is that now we have realized that actually they will, and now we have the time. All the vessels existing today will be more or less gone in 2050. We have a unique opportunity now to basically change the whole world fleet and deliver what is required of us. So I'm actually a bit more optimistic than pessimistic these days. Uh, and if we can get the last piece in that the society is willing to put that price on carbon, I think a lot of things will start happening. Okay, thanks, Lasse. Bud, I have to see you have your hand up. Uh, uh, please comment, and then why don't you just give us uh, 15 seconds or so after that of your final thoughts. We'll do a lightning round for everybody here. Great. Well, thanks, John. And um, I had my hand up a little earlier and took it down because Lasse had said something that it, I wanted to emphasize, but um, I'm going to follow up on his comments pretty strongly here because I think he, he said a lot of things that really resonate with me. Um, and we do work very closely on, on solving these very difficult problems. Um, the first thing I wanted to say was, I, I think Lasse is exactly right, that uh, we do some things really, really well in shipping. I mean, we really do. We keep the world's economy functioning. We are the conduit for trade. Uh, we do it in a remarkably energy efficient and carbon efficient manner today with today's technologies. What we don't do well is we don't explain that very well. And if you look at the amount of attention, you know, one grounding in the Suez Canal, you know, got worldwide compared to, you know, all the things that happen in a, in a given year to us that operate large fleets, uh, it seems wildly disproportionate. We don't do a very good job at explaining the value we add. And I think we can 
definitely improve on that value we add. And you've heard some really good ideas that I agree with, including uh, digitalization is a big part of our strategy going forward to provide more value to the customers, more value to the supply chain, make our fleets operate more efficiently on behalf of the customers, and then also to help with the decarbonization efforts. Because when it comes to ways to manage energy efficiency, in my opinion, it's not just something we do today to manage the situation with the existing fuels. And we look forward at the future fuels. It will help close the price gap because if we need less of them, then it makes it more realistic to bring them into place sooner. But also all of these future fuels really have volumetric density challenges. So whatever we can do on the energy efficiency side and digitalization tools can really help with that a lot. We'll bring more of these options into play sooner and at greater volumes for us. I think that's a really important point. I could not agree more with Lassie's comment, and I, and I think he and I witnessed this firsthand, the transformation in the ship owner community over the last, I don't even know if it's three years. I mean, it might be two years. It might be 18 months. It has been remarkable. It's been extraordinary. You don't hear any ship owners in the mainstream today being climate deniers or thinking that they just don't have to do something. That, that's just not even part of the conversation. The conversation now is about how high do we set the aspirations? How much can we contribute? How can we get there? And how do we explain it? That is such a better place to be. And if you look at where we're positioned going into this you know, really important COP26 session, where I think transport and shipping is going to be more front and center than it has been in the past, and then the subsequent IMO MEPC meeting, uh, you know, look at where the shipping industry is. We openly supported collectively a market-based measure in setting a price on, on carbon as a, on an industry level. Um, the International Chamber of Shipping and Intercargo have made a proposal for a specific market-based measure to IMO. We have publicly stated through uh, International Chamber of Shipping and many companies and through other collective agreements um, have also made a statement for zero for 2050 being where the target ought to be set. We've come hey, a long way. Sorry, to, I'm sorry to, let me let me stop you there. We're almost out of time. Let me just in uh, two or three words, each of you lightning round here, starting with Andreas before we close. We're down to the last minute. Well, but covered all of us, but uh, let me say that Last year, we were all talking about the year 2020 and uh, how we would manage the loss of uh, regulations and so on. Nobody, nobody talks about it. Nobody talks about it. It's normal. The market, you know, the market and has adjusted okay. itself. Aaron, so Aaron, we will make sure up. that the same happens uh, with shipping moving forward. Okay, Aaron. Yeah, no, as a, tech, as a technology provider, we see the future as uh, extremely optimistic. There's lots of options out there and we're, we're excited to hear all this great talk about sustainability. And uh, we the solutions are out there and we're ready to support. Thank you, Martin. Yeah, I look forward to seeing you all in five years. I'll talk about <laughs> what we have made in those five years because I actually think this time with the right. things we have on the agenda, things will change uh, and it will be actually quite interesting. Okay, Lassie. We have uniquely exciting times. We're going to change the technology base on that with the decarbonization and digital. So I think it's an extremely exciting industry you know, the next decade. Thank you. Thank you, all of us. I close with uh, another Winston Churchill remark that I think is apt. Success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. It sounds like you're all continuing. Thank you, panelists. Thank you, Nicholas and Capital Links. 
Thank you Thank very you. much. Great job, John. Terrific panel. Thank, Thank you. you very, very much. And a global panel. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye-bye.